This is Andrew Wilkes. This is Leah Wilkes. And this is Theology on Fire. Well, welcome back. Today we are going to be talking about a very sober subject. We're going to be talking about the place called hell. So I hope that you will listen. I hope that this will be uh, one that is just real, one that is honest, and where we look at some things of Scripture which are uncomfortable but which are necessary for us to understand because it affects really so much in our Christian lives. Amen. The place of hell in the Bible is actually very important. It's very important for us to know what this place is, why it exists, who goes there. Um, Andrew recently spoke about this topic and he was talking about the wrath of God and I was immediately just fearful and apprehensive because I know this subject can be abused and my reaction in many ways was wrong because just because a doctrine has been abused doesn't mean we should refuse to teach it and, you know, tuck it under a blanket. Oh, well, oh, that's, that one's kind of sketchy or that one's like a hot topic. We don't want to go there. No. I mean, honestly, all the more something like that should be taught on and scripturally expanded upon because I think people are scared of the fact that God has wrath. But as saved children of God, I don't know that we need to be scared. We need to be reverent and we need to be God-fearing in the manner that we see laid out clearly in the Proverbs and through all of Scripture. But we also need to understand the full character of God and the existence of hell is a part of understanding that. Hell is real. It's not just symbolism. And I know this can feel uncomfortable and prickly talking about it. You know, you might think, well, what are they going to do? Are they going to threaten people with hell? Are they going to paint a bad picture of the Lord? Is this going to be all hellfire? And no, I don't, I really, you know, it's not, I really believe not, but we want to paint an accurate picture of our God who is just and righteous and holy. Amen. So we've, we've talked about why we're going to talk about hell something very basic. We've got to understand that we are spiritual beings. We're spiritual beings, and we live in a temporal body. I think we confuse that. We think, well, we're physical people, and there's also the spiritual side. But really, more than anything, we are spiritual people inside of a physical body. And these bodies, they're going to wear out whenever we die. They're going to wear out. We will die. And the question is, where does the spiritual part go? Does it cease to exist what happens to it? And a reference point that I've come to many times is Hebrews 9.27, and it says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So every person will die, unless you're raptured, or unless you are, you're a person who somehow makes it through the tribulation, um, if you don't know the Lord now. Uh, and we'll talk about the rapture, and we'll talk about the tribulation and things like this later. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, where the church is called out before the wrath of God is poured out on this earth. However, the point is, you will die unless that occurs to your life. And after that, there is judgment. And that's very serious, and it has very big implications, this word judgment. So what I want to do is I want to go to John chapter 3. And this is typically a chapter where we reference the importance of being born again, the fact that God loves the world and that we can be born again. And this is true. But I believe we focus many times on one side of the scripture 
that Jesus gives, one side of the comments. And I want to look at the opposite side. So in John 3, 3, we're told, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's what I want to focus on there is not seeing the kingdom of God. If you're not born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is a place. And the only way to get there is by being born again. We're told in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This means that if you don't believe in him, you will perish, and you will not have eternal life. And what is the opposite of eternal life? Eternal death. John 3.18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So there's condemnation upon all people who have not put their faith, their trust, their rest, repented, and believed upon Jesus Christ to be the Savior of their souls. And then finally in John 3.36, John the Baptist speaking here, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. So again, if you do not believe in the Son of God, not simply that he existed, not attend church or you were water baptized one time, but you have not truly given your life to Christ and he has not transformed you, you are not new. Now, I'm not talking about you turn over a new leaf. I'm not talking about you quit cursing, smoking, looking at things you should know. If he has not come in, if you do not have a communing relationship with him, if you have not been born again, The wrath of God remains on you. It's there. The wrath of God is there, waiting to execute judgment upon your life. Amen. And in the midst of that, we we know the scripture, it's not God's will that any should perish, but that is his standard. He's perfect and holy. That is why he sent his son to be a perfect sacrifice. That's why that that shows his love right there. It is not his will that any should perish. He made a way. It's not enough just to believe, like Andrew said. I mean, the devil believes in God. That's not enough. We need to be given to the Lord Jesus Christ and born again. And we live in a day and age whenever words mean a lot less. We say, oh, well, that's what that means to you. Well, There are laws in the land, and based on specific language, you will either go to jail or not go to jail. So let me be clear to you. Words have significance. So whenever it says the wrath of God, it doesn't mean, oh, well, I'm going to spiritualize this. No, this is the same God who kicked man out of the garden, and death came upon man. This is the same God who brought the flood and executed punishment and judgment upon all the earth. He provided a way of salvation. And it even says in Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was preaching the wrath of God to come, and there was a way of salvation in that ark. I believe God would have allowed more people to come in there, but they did not turn. This is the same God whenever you read Revelation, and the people cry out, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, and they still refuse to believe Him, even with angels declaring the gospel all over the earth. It's crazy. That man is so rebellious. But this is a God who has wrath. This is a characteristic of God. Not the only one, but it's an important one to recognize that is there. Mm -hmm. And this even will beg the question, how do you interpret your Bible? Do you take it literally? Or are you going to just spiritualize it whenever you come across something that you don't like? If you spiritualize hell, well, then you have to spiritualize the first part of those 
uh, scriptures that I read that Jesus even came at all, that he actually does provide salvation, that he did raise, that he was raised from the dead. And Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 15, 16 to 19. And this is what he said to the Corinthians. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's, it's worthless. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ's sacrifice, if it didn't really happen, if he didn't really raise from the dead like some people were falsely preaching to the Corinthians there, we're, we're just the biggest fools of anyone. But he has. And so because he has, we have to be very consistent. And just when we come across a hard teaching like this, not to turn away from it, but to humble ourselves and not to characterize God only by this, but to take in by the Holy Spirit all that he is and ask him for wisdom and understanding in this. Amen. So where does unbelief and dying in sins leave a person? If they're not going to go to heaven, because Jesus said there was a kingdom, right? There was a kingdom of God that we could enter into, that there was a place that we could go to be with him. John 14, he said, I will not leave you alone. I will come to you. I'm going and I've prepared. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. The Holy Spirit will come and I will, re- I will return and I will bring you to be where I am. And that was for his disciples. That was for his followers. So if it's not there, a place of rest, a place of reward in heaven, it's a place called hell. And in 2 Peter 2, 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. There's that judgment. Skipping on to verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Angels rebelled against God. Satan rebelled against God. He wanted to be like the Most High. And Jesus said, I saw him fall from heaven like lightning. He was judged, and he deceived a third of the angels, is what the scripture says. And if God judged them, some of those angels, whether it was that initial sin or something further that was done, he put some of them in hell, and the unrighteousness will also be under that same punishment until that day of judgment that's coming. God will put you in hell if you do not turn to him. And it is that simple. Now look, you have a chance you, you, if you end up in hell, you literally have to go over the sacrificed body of Jesus Christ to get there. It was Charles Spurgeon. He said this. He said, if anyone goes to hell, let it be that we throw ourselves upon their feet and that they have to basically fight us and walk over us even to get there, that we would throw ourselves between men and hell. And that is a beautiful picture there. And Jesus literally, though, laid down his body on a cross and was raised from the dead so that we wouldn't have to go there. You know, Jesus, he taught on hell. It says in Mark 9, 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck, a concrete stone, a rock stone were around their neck and thrown into the sea. Basically, you're drowning and you're dying. It's better to have physical death than to cause one of these little ones to die, a a young person, a new convert even. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled 
than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Listen, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Jesus said that if anything keeps you from repenting and putting your faith in him, any sin, no matter how seductive, how wonderful it seems, whether it be sexual pleasure, whether it be money, whatever it is, fame, ambition, whatever it is, it is better to even go to the point of self-mutilation. Not that he is saying to do it, but if it were that or hell, it's better to do that than go to hell because hell is infinitely worse than even losing one of your most precious parts of your body. There's fire, there's torment. It's awful. And I want to look at one passage here, and I just want to walk through this with you, Leah, and, and those that are listening. It's Luke 16, 19 to 29, and this is a story that Jesus told, and this is not a parable. Whenever we see parables, we don't see names. There was a young man, and he left his father. Well, there are no names there, and he comes back. This is the story of the prodigal, right? But that seems to be a parable. And Jesus is trying to teach from that story. But where I'm about to read from, there are actual names used. And this is a factual story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. And this is Luke 16, 19. And who feasted sumptuously every day. So he was clothed in purple. He was rich, fine linen, the best clothing. He feasted. He didn't just feast, but he feasted sumptuously Every day. So that's him. But verse 20, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So right here, we can see that, I mean, this is awful. Here's this man with all this abundance, and the person who's laid at his gate has nothing. This man is not seeking to help this poor man. This poor man is desiring just for crumbs that fall from his table. This man who's feasting sumptuously, he's a wicked, evil man, is what we're seeing here in his character, because he's not even caring. I mean, he could give this man not just his scraps, he could give him a side house, I'm sure, care for him somehow, put some clothes on him, get a doctor to help him, put some food in his belly. But that's not what we see here. So we see his character is one of evil and of unbelief. And in the law, there are many laws about taking care of the poor. So we can see his character is not a God-fearing man. So what happens here? It says, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. He had no help. He was all alone. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, or King James in, in the literal uh, meaning of this in Greek, side is bosom, Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Mm. And in Hades... Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. And I just want to see there, it's so sweet we see that this man um, that was poor, he was carried away by angels. Isn't that amazing? He was carried away by angels to a place of rest with Abraham. But the rich man, he was in torment. He lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. He just wanted a drop of water. For I am in anguish in this flame. 
But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And this is not to say, Leah, that simply because someone is wealthy that they're going to go to hell, or simply because someone's poor that they're going to go to heaven. That's part of this kind of a Marxist um, theology that people try to take and twist things, um, kind of like a social justice theology. But Abraham said that, and uh, verse 26, And besides all this between us and you, there's a great chasm has been fixed. It's fixed. God has actually placed a chasm between us. Why? In order that those who would pass from here, this place of rest, to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So the any doctrine or any theology that would say that someone could go from a place of torment to a place of rest is false. If you've ever heard it anywhere, whether it be universalism, whether it be just a temporary punishment in hell, or whether it would be a place of purgatory, we see very clearly in this scripture, it's impossible. God has placed a bounds and you cannot cross it. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him. This is this rich man, and he's, he's begging Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. So in summary, what do we see there? It's a place of torment, anguish. There's a flame that is hot. It's a place where mercy was desired, but none was found, where a person was so desperate, they just wanted a single drop of water to relieve the pain and the heat that they felt from the flame of hell. But even there, this man would have been the greatest evangelist, it would appear. Go tell my family. I want them to repent. I want them to not to come to where I am. And you know, there are people from my life that I know did not know Christ when they died. And I know we need to be led by the Lord how we speak to people. God, give me compassion for those that still remain, for those that are still alive. Let my heart be quickened. This impacts the Great Commission. This impacts missions. This impacts what we think about evangelism. It impacts what we think about the love of God. Do we not see the beauty of the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross to rescue us from hell, to bring us back to God in a loving relationship with Him? Does it not seem to amplify our understanding of it? Amen. And I really think to know about hell isn't just for the lost person. I I know that the Bible says some will be saved that way by the fear of hell. And, And you know, it is a reality that Lord leading you can share with someone about that reality and that 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 will be their destination unless they are saved but honestly just knowing about hell it's good for the christian it's good for the saved person to realize just the desperate situation that the lost are in and the judgment that is to come to give us more of a heart to evangelize more of a heart to share the gospel the desperate place that the lost are in and what a timely message What a timely message. At this point in our world, people are afraid. This virus is going around. Everything is closing down. People are losing their jobs, losing money, and everybody's just afraid for all different reasons. And it is a great time for the gospel. It is a great time to share about the coming of the Lord and the coming judgment. My aunt 
just recently shared with a man that comes to maintain her boiler and, and he was afraid and he she, she led him to the Lord right there on her doorstep. He was fearful in the current circumstances in our earth and another friend of mine, her father she's been praying for for decades came to the Lord because of this fear that's going on in our world right now and it's just such a poignant time. It's such a special time and a time that we shouldn't waste. If there, there are opportunities all around us right now because of the fear in people, and it's a great time to share. And I pray that this message and this lesson on hell will all the more just stir you to take every opportunity that comes your way because this is real, and this is really the future of those that do not know Christ and are not given to Him. Amen. So please do share this. Share this with people in love. This breaks my heart. I was brought to tears I was telling Leah, and you know, that's the heart that God wants when we talk to people about judgment. A broken heart. Not that I'm perfect, but honestly, guys, you don't just go shout about hell and not love the people you speak to. God loved this world so much. Doesn't that emphasize that now? God so loved this world that he gave his son, that whoever would believe upon him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Such gravity. And the awful thing is, hell is not even the true end of the unbeliever. There is an initial judgment that does occur at death, and I don't know what that looks like, but clearly it's, it's heaven or hell at that moment. But Revelation 20, verses 13 to 14 says this. This is the great white throne judgment of God. This is after the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And this is whenever God establishes the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. But there's a great white throne judgment. And it says this. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So their bodies were held in the grave. Their spiritual substance was held in hell. And now they're called up. A moment of respite, a moment of break, but then judgment, and then eternal, terrible, ultimate punishment, and the lake of fire. In Matthew 25, 46, Jesus said this, and these will go away into eternal punishment. Eternal punishment forever. This doesn't end. There's no way out. There's no repentance in hell. That's why that man said, please, if I can't get out of here, please send someone to talk to my family so they don't get here too. And we're left with this question. Why would a God of love do this? And you know, that's often an argument one of two ways to uh, somehow lower hell or spiritualize it or maybe just to say I will never serve a god like that because I could never how how could he do that but that what you're really saying is that you know better than god you're saying that he's not the ultimate authority and that you are the ultimate litmus test in right and wrong but we aren't he is and we've got to understand just because god is love it does not erase all the other attributes that he has of justice of holiness, righteousness, and even of wrath, as we've said. You know, our own nations punish people all the time for the crimes they've committed. And the severity of the punishment is always based on the severity of the crime. That's why there are differing punishments. 
within this natural legal system that we live under. Right. But we've offended a perfect God. We've offended perfection, God himself. So the only even logical punishment is the ultimate punishment, the worst punishment. And that punishment is hell with agony and pain. In my personal opinion and estimation, the greatest agony of hell is not the salting of fire or a worm that never dies or a literal fire that causes pain and discomfort forever. It is this, you know, in the garden, the presence of God was lost. Man lost the presence of God. And everything Jesus did was to make us right with God and to bring us back to the presence of God. That was what was so special about tearing the veil. No longer was it the law where one high priest one time a year could go into the presence of God and only to make a sacrifice. But we have been invited into the presence of God any time to come boldly before the throne of grace. But you'll never have that in hell. You'll never have perfection. You'll never have God. You'll never have his love. You'll never have his peace. You'll never know that intimacy, the sweet fellowship and caring of a loving heavenly father. And it's because you rejected it on earth. And if you reject his presence on earth, if you reject his offer here, what you've been invited into, you'll never have it for all of eternity. And whenever you wake up in agony and you lift up your eyes in hell and torment, you will wish that you could go back, but it will be too late. So God, just help us, I pray. Make this real, Lord, if anyone is listening right now and they are not truly saved, that they would turn to you, they would humble their hearts, that you would cut them to the quick Holy Spirit and show them their need for Jesus, and they would repent and put their faith in you. Lord God, put a just a tenderness and a love in our hearts for the lost, Yes, that we will give them the gospel when you prompt us to. Yes, sir. Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Theology on Fire. Please subscribe so you won't miss new episodes. All of our information and contact details can be found at theologyonfire.org.